Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. All right. Hey, listeners. Um, another great episode ahead of us today. Um, you may have noticed that I've been mentioning it every week that our interview guest game is, is just totally up. Uh, I don't know if it's the pandemic or we're picking up buzz or I've just made a lot of friends in the quote unquote capitalized movement. But we, we've had some awesome folks and, and we've really been bringing on a variety of sort of activists, intellectuals, straddling both lines and today is really no exception to that uh, we have uh, kevin zesier from uh popular resistance and this is a new site that we're, we're going to talk about that's that's really picking up uh, i think a lot of readership in the sort of alt left and, and really also libertarian media space which is just so vital uh, i first uh, came across kevin not only through his willingness to you know publish a lot of my work, especially some of my longer and historical work uh, over at Popular Resistance, um, but also just the, the site in general, especially in the wake of sort of truth dig going the way of the temporary or permanent dinosaur. Uh, Popular Resistance has really been important to me personally, but much more importantly to the wider sort of movement and the media space. Uh, we, we first kind of went digitally quarantine face to face at uh, an Assange, uh, free Julian Assange vigil that uh, some of you may have seen a couple weeks back. And uh, our sort of complimentary banter and, and his just wide ranging analysis was largely uh, what made me think of having you on, Kevin. Uh, so, so thanks very much for that. Uh, for the sort of formal background for folks who don't know who he is, um, you know, Kevin Zeese is a, a public interest attorney, attorney who has worked for economic, racial, and environmental justice since graduating from uh, George Washington Law School in 1980. And I think we could add to that list of activism as well. Uh, he co-directs popularresistance.org, which is building uh, an independent movement for transformational change. And I think that's accurate. Uh, uh, he co-hosts uh, Clearing the Fog Radio. Uh, which airs on We Act Radio, Progressive Radio Network, and other outlets. Uh, he's recognized as a leading activist in the U.S. in the series Americans Who Tell the Truth. Uh, Kevin was an organizer of the Occupation of Freedom Plaza in D.C. in 2011. He serves as president of, well, just a laundry list of, of elements that he's involved in, but president of Common Sense for Drug Policy, a co-founder of the Drug Policy Foundation, now known as the Drug Policy Alliance. And we are going to talk about militarization of the police and the connections between domestic and international policy. Uh, he's also a co-founder of Health Over Profit for Everyone, uh, which seeks to put in place national improved Medicare for all. <laughs> Couldn't be a better time uh, to talk about that than here in the pandemic-exposed 
uh, health detritus that is America. He's an advocate for internet freedom uh, and a leader of the campaign for Title II net neutrality. Uh, he's also one of the organizers of We Are Cove Point, which seeks to stop uh, fracking at a gas export terminal in Southern Maryland. Uh, he also advocates for election integrity, another important aspect of what's going on today, uh, and co-founded True Vote Maryland, which led a successful campaign to end the use of paper, paperless voting machines in the state. Uh, additionally, a co-founder of Come Home America, this is really key. He brings people from across the political spectrum together to work against war and militarism in all its forms, right? And including the empire coming home. Uh, he served on steering committees uh, for the Chelsea Manning Support Network, as well as on the advisory board for the Courage Foundation, which supports Edward Snowden and other whistleblowers. Uh, he's been active in independent and third party political campaigns for some time now, serving as press secretary and spokesperson for Ralph Nader in 04 and as a senior advisor to Jill Stein in 2016. Uh, he ran for the U.S. Senate in 2006 and, in fact, is the only person ever nominated by the Green, Libertarian, and Populist parties of Maryland, uh, which, Kevin, I think means that you either have broad appeal uh, or you are just mostly hated by Democrats and Republicans, but I like it either way. <laughs> maybe both, maybe both. Uh, so, Kevin, we're super excited to have you. Uh, thanks for taking the time, and, and this is just going to be great. That was a long bio. Well, you know, Kevin, no one has ever uh, <laughs> accused me of uh, being brief uh, in any way. <laughs> and as someone who has edited some of my work or, or seen it edited, I think I think you know this quite well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, well, thank you for that. I mean, I appreciate it. I, I love your work, so I'm happy to, to be on your show and uh, have to talk with you about all these issues you want to talk about. And uh, whatever you want to cover, we're happy, I'm happy to talk about. Well, great. We definitely will go kind of wide-ranging and I'll start with a, a couple of things so you know what strikes me about that bio that long bio isn't just the impressive resume length uh, of which I, I truly hardly scratched the surface you know as I did my research but what strikes me is the breadth and scope of the issues that you've advocated for uh, sort of a theme as I mentioned our recent guest invitees has been sort of a certain common nexus between intellectual and activist and you certainly fit that mold uh, in particular, we've lately had some excellent historians on the podcast, but, you know, reading about you and, and getting to know you, in a sense, it seems that your activism probably has a history unto itself. So if you'll forgive the cliched opening, I'm wondering if you could briefly provide, you know, what history geeks like me think is the most vital part of any issue, the backstory, right? the backstory to your life's work and journey. And were there aspects to your upbringing and or pivot points in that progression that led you to some of these broad sets of issues and dedication to actually, you know, do something about them? Well, um, I grew up in, uh, you know, as a teenager in, in the 60s and 70s, uh, which was a time of a lot of activity. I wasn't, I was in, you know, I went to protests, anti-war protests and anti-racism protests. If I wasn't a leader or organizer or anything along those lines, I remember my first protest where I played any significant role was when I was in college at University of Buffalo, we took a bus trip to Boston during the school desegregation battles. And they were pretty violent battles. And uh, my role in that was to be a security person, uh, which meant I was in the perimeter of the protest and had the pleasure of being attacked by Boston police on horseback. And those police, those horses are pretty big. So that was pretty a pretty wild experience. But it just showed me the, uh, 
lengths to which the government will go to fight against uh, anti-racism in that case. Uh, but I've seen it also in environmental protests, uh, in uh, economic justice, and anti-war protests. It's, so it's really, and over the years I've decided to work on a variety of issues because what I've discovered is that uh, issues are first off all connected. That uh, when you talk about race, it affects environment as environmental racism. We talk about economic equalities and incredible racial differences. We talk about war, people who are uh, drawn into the military because of the economic draft, very high percentage of people of color compared to the population and the, and the countries we attack are black and brown countries. Uh, and so there's a racism. And so on every issue you could go through and pick out the relationships. And I really believe that a movement of movements is, the, is a critical factor in our success. Uh, some of the most successful projects we've worked on, like stopping the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was the largest corporate trade agreement in history. President Obama was talking with 600 corporate advisors, but negotiating the tr this agreement in secret. Uh, one of the great quotes was uh, his trade representative, the ambassador for uh, for trade, said the reason we keep it secret is because people knew it was in it, it wouldn't pass. I thought that was a really interesting anti-democracy statement. We got to keep it secret because people will oppose it. Uh, so we, that was a five-year campaign, and I think uh, it brought together people from labor, environment, healthcare, pharmaceuticals economic, racial, I mean, people, all these issues were impacted by this massive corporate agreement. And really, it was the uh, movement of movements that was created around that that was what led to its success. Uh, it came to the point that someone like Rob Portman, who had been a, a trade czar under George Bush, uh, he's a senator from Ohio, had to come out against it. Hillary Clinton, who was the Secretary of State under Obama when the treaty was being negotiated, had to come out against it. Uh, he just couldn't find support. Obama kept pushing it up to the last minute. He was even planning on pushing it after uh, Trump was elected, uh, but before he was inaugurated during a lame duck session. But the opposition was so great, he had to back down finally. I think that his pushing the TPP throughout the 2016 campaign is one reason why Trump succeeded, because people saw the impact of NAFTA and saw that TPP would have been even worse. Uh, and so that movement of movements concept is one reason why I work on so many issues. The other issue is one thing that Ralph Nader taught me, which and he works on a whole range of issues as well, is that, you know, issues have their moments to make progress, and then they have moments when they're, when they're stopped. And if you work on one issue, you, you find yourself making progress and stopped. But if you have multiple issues, you can switch to another issue and keep pushing forward. Because these issues are connected, you make progress on that other issue, you often uh, dislodge the blockades of the issue that you were blocked on. When I worked on drug policy, now I went to law school uh, wanting to be a lawyer who believed in uh, you know, individual rights and the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and uh, public interest, lawyers working for the public interest. And that was my kind of headspace going into law school. And the, when I wanted to work on, uh, you know, Criminal defense was where I thought I'd work, so I told the professor in charge of uh, setting up internships, and he assigned me to Normal, which is a national organization for reform marijuana laws. And in doing that, I started out responding to letters from prisoners, 
saw the racism in the prison system, saw the impact on individuals and families and communities, and realized this is a much bigger issue than many people realized. At the time, marijuana legalization was very unpopular. We would get death threats at Normal. I became Normal's chief counsel and national director uh, in that era. And um, I found even there that this simple issue of marijuana legalization was tied to so many others, the Colombian drug war, drug testing in the workplace, the use of the National Guard and military and law enforcement at home, the spraying of herbicides in Mexico and in Kentucky and Tennessee and other states, uh, mass incarceration, racism, economic impacts, so many issues uh, in this simple, seemingly simple one issue of marijuana legalization. Then you get the whole medical side of it, medical use of marijuana, which some people thought was a, you know, a front for legal adult use. When you got into that issue, you saw the real impacts in people's lives, uh, dealing with a range of serious illnesses for which pharmaceuticals are not always very good or have serious side effects. And so we've gone from getting death threats when I was working there uh, to the point now where we have 65% support for adult legal use and 85% for medical marijuana being legal. And so it's an amazing transformation. It's great to actually see that kind of success. So everywhere I've worked, on every issue I've worked on, I've seen connections to other issues. And I've seen that no one person makes a difference, but you have to bring people together. And it's creating that kind of uh, movement mentality. And I found that in the drug policy issue. When we started to link mandatory sentencing, medical marijuana, forfeiture, foreign policy issues, legal marijuana, all these issues together, and people started to think as a movement that we really started to have victories. And I think that was a, a critical part of why we're, we made some progress finally in the United States on those issues. I'm not sure I'm answering your question. I'm kind of rambling on a bit, but uh, I hope that gives you some sense of the way I approach these issues. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, personally, I think I took what's a fairly conventional journey for a, a lot of veterans who end up in the anti-war movement, which is, you know, I didn't start out linking these things. You know, it was more slow. I was so deep in the beast that it started out as, oh, like these wars aren't working. And so that would, that's what I was concerned with. And then it was, mm. well, maybe these wars uh, aren't really, uh, you know, shouldn't be fought in the first place. Maybe they're unethical. And, and, and then it kept growing until eventually, I, you know, I personally started to see, wait a second, like the war is at home and the war is abroad. And I really like your use of the marijuana issue there because it is one of those seemingly rare, but maybe not so rare, uh, even for a pessimist like me, uh, although I don't know if that's a fair term, but you know, it's one of those rare victories, right? Which, which happen, and, and maybe we don't even notice them because you're right. I mean, there's been such a sea change on that issue. I can't even imagine how that must appear to you from the start. Um, so building on sort of all that awesome uh, personal and professional context, I'm going to dig in specifically to the foreign domestic thing. You know, I'm super impressed by your consistent linkage, as you mentioned, of the domestic to the international in all American systems and policies. And I think systems being the key word, it's frankly refreshing. I mean, there's a lot of talk these days about uh, what I think the kids call intersectionality. Uh, now, obviously, I'm just playing the curmudgeon there because whether in you know academia, where we used interdisciplinary as our kind of preferred term, uh, or activism, you know, the sentiment and the strategy is clearly vital to success, and also just basic respect for the collectives. Um, 
However, in practice, there are still far too many folks that are sort of stovepiped in their pet cause or, or even more so method of advancement. And of course, here I'm thinking of the academics who increasingly write books discernible only to each other and then turn into pumpkins if they show up at a rally, uh, like their students, right? Oftentimes, unfortunately, not all of them. So as a follow-up, maybe you can provide just a little bit more uh, detail of your take on the concept, specifically how you've seen it progress for you over the years and why you've linked foreign and domestic policy across your work and analysis. Well, there's a lot of, boy, a lot of issues in that. Um, for, before I get to the foreign and domestic, which I think is really important, let me just say this on uh, how movements progress is something that I've also learned over years of experience and uh, learning, not just through experience, but from reading and understanding the history of movements and, and we, Margaret Flowers and I, who's my co-director, Margaret Flowers, she's a doctor and uh, I'm a lawyer. We co-direct popular resistance. We've put together a movement school, how social transformation occurs. If you go to popularresistance.org, on the top you'll see school. It's a web-based school, eight classes with lots of reading materials if you want to read those. Eight video classes, each an hour long. Uh, and it's, uh, it really goes through how movements succeed. Uh, and there's a lot, we can talk much more about that because I think it's really important right now because we're going into a, a decade, the 2020s, especially with the COVID virus and the economic collapse. But even before that, we saw this. The 2020s are being a decade of transformation because there are so many crisis issues the country is facing from our never ending wars to inadequate health care to poverty and housing issues, education issues whole range, race issues, and they're just at incredibly crisis levels now. And as a result, we are um, going into a period of potential significant change. But to do so, we have to really be conscious of what we're doing and what we're facing. And that's why we did this uh, school on how social transformation occurs. On the foreign domestic issue, uh, you know, one of the groups I work with is UNAC, the United National Anti-War Coalition, and their view of war is stop the wars at abroad and stop the wars at home. Because uh, the wars abroad, we see these never-ending wars that started after 9-11. We see a a foreign policy that goes back almost to the founding of the country that's based on militarism. First, in in, in the manifest destiny of taking uh, large chunks of indigenous, all indigenous land, and large chunks of uh, Mexico, uh, to create the lower 48, uh, and uh, that was long-time wars for the founding of the country, and Manifest Destiny has really given birth to U.S. empire, which is the largest empire in global history. We have uh, at least 800 military bases, probably 1,200 military bases and outposts. Hard to count them because the government doesn't really like to let those numbers out. But the best guess are 12 to 1,300 military bases and outposts. They put that in historical perspective. Rome, uh, England, when they were at their peak of empire, had less than 40 military bases. So we are an empire of bases like no other. We have military forces in uh, almost every country of the world. Uh, it's a massive uh, part of our federal budget. And as a result, more than half of our discretionary spending goes into the military. It's more than a trillion dollars when you include the Pentagon and the other agencies that are part of it. Uh, and so that spending has an impact domestically because while we, uh, while the Congress will always say yes to war funding uh, without any question of how do we pay for it, uh, they will always say when it comes to health care, how do we pay for it? When it comes to 
free college. How do we pay for it? And uh, so they, they throw up the fear of debt when it comes to necessary uh, economic and social services at home. But when it comes to war and military spending, uh, the Pentagon asks for money and the Congress gives them more. And uh, there's no hesitation about giving more money. So that's one aspect of the domestic international relationship. Another aspect of it is militarization. Uh, you know, there's a, we have a program in the federal government that supplies military equipment to police. And so over the last 30, I'd say since the 70s till now, we've seen the police militarized in incredible ways. There were never a SWAT team passed. That is something that's relatively new uh, to the U.S. police experience, but now it's the norm. SWAT teams, almost every police jurisdiction has them. These paramilitary units that even serve search warrants, uh, they're aggressively used. And we see this military gear now that's so common uh, among military, among militarized police throughout the country, even, even using tanks uh, in, in, in urban areas. Uh, and so the, the violence of the police uh, has become outrageous, especially in black and brown communities. Uh, we see way too often uh, killings of people uh, of, from communities of color uh, that just are reprehensible. And when the videos are seen, people are shocked by them. It's just because it becomes so common uh, and such a major issue of our times. Uh, and so we have essentially a war at home. I know in my city of Baltimore, like many cities, cities are very segregated. Uh, and uh, we, I'd say Baltimore is hyper-segregated. We have what's called the white L that goes down the center of the city and along the coast of the, of the Chesapeake. And then we have the black butterflies, the east and west coast, uh, east and west portions of the cities that are uh, neglected, underinvested in, and have 40,000 abandoned houses. Uh, and people in those communities are uh, lacking jobs, lacking income, and but they're not lacking in police. The police are there to essentially keep people in those black butterflies so they don't invade the white L. Uh, and I think that's true in many cities. Police are used as an occupying force in poor and communities of color, and they're used as a force to keep those communities separate from the wealthier neighborhoods. Uh, so we have a war at home that we have to face up to. And I think this militarization issue uh, is one that we have to confront. Uh, and I, th I think we're going to see the end of U.S. empire in this decade. Uh, there's so many signs of a failing empire that uh, we are. It, 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 we need to do our job as citizens of empire uh, to end the U.S. empire in the way it's least destructive to the world and to the people of the United States because it's it's going to end. Empires do end. Uh, no empire has ever survived, and there's lots of signs. A lot of scholars believe. The signs are in place right now for U.S. empire uh, to be in its uh, fading glory. So building on Danny's question and your, your comments about uh, police brutality and uh, militarization, uh, I find that there are a few examples of the link between imperial and domestic policy that are more clear and crucial than policing. Yeah. Um, it seems that both police brutality and militarization have continued unabated in the era of the coronavirus the uh, death and murder investigation of Ahmad Abery, in addition to other deaths uh, involving law enforcement since the virus has uh, has been out there, have reminded us that while, while some can afford to be in quarantine, the working class and certainly people of color have had to expose themselves 
more than others, not just to the, vir uh, the virus, but also continuing uh, to be exposed to police violence. Um, alongside that, there have been numerous law enforcement related anniversaries recently. I'm thinking of the 50th anniversary of the first SWAT team mission by the LAPD uh, in yep. a rating. Black Panthers, Kevin, I'm sure you're very familiar with it, which yep. uh, wounded six people and began the era of police militarization as we know it, uh, shortly followed just a bit bit later by the uh, the Kent State Massacre that saw four innocent students dead at the hands of the National Guard. So, Kevin, how have you viewed police brutality and militarization in our current time of coronavirus? Do you see any change possible in this era, possibly from uh, some of the newer progressive DAs that have been making some bigger changes? And uh, as far as advocates for peace and anti-militarism, where do you think the focus should be when it comes to critically advocating for good habits in police officers? Great, great points, and I think really good points about um, the COVID virus era, because both on international and domestic fronts, as you pointed out, the uh, militarization continues. It's, it's kind of shocking to the world that the U.S. is uh, escalating the economic wars that we call sanctions, the illegal unilateral coercive measures against countries like Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, Iran, at a time when they're, they're all in health crisis that we're denying them access to medicines. is just uh, really a very bad example for the United States. I think in this COVID crisis era at home, uh, it's going to be, we, we've seen in, in, in New York City, for example, that 84% uh, of those arrested for violating stay-at-home orders and the six-foots and six-foot rules and the not wearing masks have been black. There's incredible pictures of wh white police going to white neighborhoods in New York handing out face masks, while in black communities they arrest people for not wearing face masks. Uh, and so the, the racist, racist police enforcement uh, has been very obvious uh, during that time. And I, I suspect that uh, this COVID virus, uh, you can see also in the response to the uh, militarized protests of these kind of right-wing protests in Michigan, where the um, protesters brandish weapons and even go into the statehouse uh, with weapons. You don't see police uh, really pushing back well against that uh, and allowing that to go on. Uh, and so there's some real interesting conflicts there, some inconsistencies and the racism, uh, this virus, this COVID virus has really magnified so many of the issues of uh, inequality, uh, class warfare, uh, racism, domestic militarization, uh, lack of access to healthcare, all these issues have been magnified. These were all problems that existed, uh, but with the COVID virus and the economic collapse, they're all being made brighter for everybody to see. I think that's going to lead to significant change. You asked for potential change. I see great potential change. Um, it's been really kind of striking. There have been several hundred uh, wildcat strikes since March uh, in the United States, barely reported in the media. Of course, those militarized right-wing protests to open up the economy, they get a lot of attention because that's consistent with the goals of those who want to get the economy and profits rolling again. But those, those who are frontline workers who are uh, facing um, risk, risk at work and not provided with protective gear, not provided with hazard pay, 
they're actually going on strike. There have been hundreds of strikes now. And there are all range of kinds of workers. It's not just you have the service workers, you have the food uh, providers, you have uh, fruit growers, uh, transit workers. A whole range of workers have been going on strike. Uh, and we've also seen rent strikes, people saying that they can't afford rent and food, and so they're not going to pay their rent, and urging rules to protect renters from uh, having to pay rent during this crisis and avoid eviction during this crisis. Um, and at the same time, there's now a, a general strike campaign, which Popular Resistance is helping to organize. You go to popularresistance.org, you'll see a slider at the top of the page about how you can participate in the general strike. Uh, it's a campaign that on a monthly basis, uh, people will uh, do a day of strike as well as support the rent strikes and support uh, the wildcat strikes that are happening. So I see a lot of activity, even in this time of people being required to stay home, people being very creative in, in protesting on a whole range of issues uh, and, and doing it in a way that is, is safe regarding the spread of the virus, at least most of the protests, uh, the more progressive ones, uh, but all sorts of uh, activity potential, including calls to de-incarcerate, to let people out of jails. We have so many people in prison in the United States, you know, with 4% of the world's population, we have 25% of the world's prisoners, and half those prisoners are nonviolent offenders. Many of those are not convicted. They're in because they couldn't pay their bail. It's cash bail system that's caused a real hardship for poorer communities. And people are urging for a release of prisoners uh, to prevent the spread of COVID. It's a death trap in these prisons. We're going to research shows that probably 100,000 prisoners will die of COVID. Uh, so there's a calls for that. So I, I do see lots of uh, possibility. My, my view is that this comes from the people. Uh, the reason we've seen a few district attorneys elected who are stopping the prosecution of marijuana and sometimes other drug cases that are prosecuting police officials is because people have uh, organized for it. Uh, people have created the political environment for it. Uh, and so I don't see it coming from Joe Biden or Donald Trump, uh, potential for future change. I see potential for future change coming from the people leading from below. And that's why this general strike campaign is so important. It's a, something that's new to the United States, the idea of a general strike. Uh, and it's, it's obviously difficult during the time of COVID and economic collapse, but it's also essential. And it's because it's a campaign, it's going to grow. People get more skilled at it. And I think by October, September, October, November, when the, the 2020 elections at its peak, you're going to see these general strike campaigns really grow. Then after the election, whoever's elected is going to find the country difficult to govern because people are going to be uh, demanding uh, a whole range of, uh, of issues like uh, improved Medicare for all, uh, like ra raising wages, like a basic income. There's a whole range of issues that are reaching, uh, approaching fruition. We just need the people to be organized to demand it. And uh, if we do that, I think we'll have an amazing decade of transformation that will go down in history like uh, some of the previous decades we've seen in the 1930s, 1960s, when major changes did happen. Yeah, that was, uh, go ahead. Go ahead, um, It would be wonderful to see that kind of change. I... Um, um, I don't honestly know where to place myself in, in, in whether or not I see that there, if, if there is a potential, but I, I will mention that already we've seen um, law enforcement become more brazen. Uh, the one example I'm thinking of this is that during the trial of Michael Rossfield 
in East, uh, East Pittsburgh it, it, at the tail end of 2019 that the police actually used dump trucks filled with gravel and police barricades to block the streets during the trial, given the the local what the local response had been there, so I'm 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 expecting police wise. I think things are going to end up being worse than better over the long run. But uh, well, I'm, well I'm, con- con- conflict conflict is part of change. Um, you, you know, unfortunate that's an unfortunate reality. I mean, when the conflict heightens, that just sharpens people's understanding of the issues. And uh, and so yes, some, I'm sure some police will respond when they start to see their colleagues prosecuted for violence that they used to get away for, get away with. But the change, that's not going to be, the, in, in the long run, that kind of activity is not going to be acceptable. The public, will, in the end, will not put up with it. And so uh, I just see, yes, con- there will be conflict, but there will be change. And that's why we did the Popular Resistance School. You know, I, I mentioned you can go to the website and on the top of the page is a school because we want people, when we see this transformation happen, our experience is that it's not one leader that does it. It's a, a, a movement that's led by multiple leaders. And so to have multiple leaders, people need to get educated about how they can make progress. And we, we cover on a daily basis uh, movements. And so we try to keep track of, uh, we, and we've done this since Occupy. When we started organizing Occupy in 2011, we started doing it then, and we've continued it since then. You know, it's very interesting. During Occupy, which was a national uprising, the a number of the percentage of the population involved in Occupy at its peak was one tenth of one percent of the population. Point one percent, a tiny amount of people, and yet we saw the FBI, Homeland Security, police departments all having conference calls each week. What do we do at Occupy? How do we do a lot? They, they, you know, they sent infiltrators into Occupy encampments. They, um, they used violence against Occupy encampments. They were so panicked about it. 0.1% of the population. Since then, while we're not all as easily measured now because it's no longer people living in encampments, what we've seen is a whole series of fronts of struggle advance. We saw the... Uh, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Fight for 15 movement, the climate justice movements, the blocking of pipelines and infrastructure for fossil fuels, uh, debt strikes. I mean, a whole range of, we we estimate now about 1% of the public, so 10 times more, about 1% of the public now is involved in in popular movements than they were during Occupy. So we've grown a great deal. Uh, And that's pretty typical of how uh, movements develop. And, uh, you know, we set up popular resistance because we want people to be able to know what's going on when it comes to movements. Uh, we don't expect the corporate media to cover it, and so we cover it. And you can sign up for a, da- a free daily news summary. We cover about 15 articles a day. You get about a four or five lines in your email about each article. If there's an article you're turned on by, you click on, get the full story. And then we urge people to be the media because one of the big battlefronts, that's why you're this kind of podcast and your writing, Danny, is so important is because one of the big battlefronts is the narrative. And the corporate media uh, and, the, and the bipartisan Washington, politicians in Washington, D.C. want to put out their narrative, and they're doing their best to block us. The way that we win is by putting our narrative out. And each of us has to think of us ourselves as the media. We all have networks of people we talk to by email, by social media, uh, by in coalitions. And if every day 
we take an article or two from the Daily Digest of news on the media, on the, on the, on the, on the popular movements, and spread that word, we are creating the narrative. And that has an impact. We can overcome the corporate media if we work together to do it. So I, 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 the movement's grown a great deal since Occupy, and the issues, issues have heightened to the point of crisis. These are the ingredients that lead me to feel confident that the 2020s are going to be a decade of transformation. So if we work together to do it, we can make it happen. The guys and I love doing the podcast, being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us, but we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone, anyone whom you might think could be affected by it. A young person looking to join the military or possibly parents advocating for a kid joining the military, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for my minorities and inflicts on those same minorities across the globe, and anyone else you think might be affected by it. Please take a moment, share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer of the podcast, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Will Arenz, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Lawrence Taylor, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. And do understand that if you can't afford to contribute to us, that doesn't bother us at all. This is a hard time for everybody. And we just want to make sure that what we share gets to as many people as possible. And now, let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, Kevin, I like a lot of what you're saying regarding sort of, yes, there's going to be some violence and there's going to be resistance from the powers that be. And I think that one of the things that's always been striking to me about, you know, my study of, you know, broad movements and, and social justice in American history is that one of the advantages, it's, it's, you know, tumultuous and dangerous, but one of the advantages of situations like today and of general strikes and, you know, activism in general is that push to the limit, it sort of forces, whether it be law enforcement or just government power in general, to sort of expose itself. 
right. to eventually have to overtly make a choice. I am or I am not willing to take violence, you know, on some level against this movement that I might otherwise sympathize with, that my own mother might support. Uh, and, and that strikes me. And it, it does seem, as you talk about, you know, race and policing, that some of the change, not all, but some of the change may well come from our sort of internal colonies, right? Folks of color who uh, experience the police in a different way. And uh, you, you mentioned Baltimore. Of course, what most Americans know about Baltimore comes from The Wire. And of course, you know, I, I was a fan. I thought it was a, a great show. But one of the interesting things about The Wire is, you know, you, you can watch five seasons and the, the characters in sort of, you know, the drug game in West and East Baltimore, I mean, they never really go to the Inner Harbor except in like one episode. And there really aren't any uh, white folks that they interact with that aren't police. And, and it strikes me, I'm not from Baltimore, that, well, those sorts of folks don't experience that part of Baltimore at all. And so there's this idea of sort of two Americas. And that kind – go ahead, please. No, I was just saying, there's a lot of truth in that, and that's, I was just saying, there's a lot of truth in that for every city. Uh, we have our inner harbor, but other cities have other uh, areas that are the uh, wealthy Central Park of New York, you know, and, uh, and versus the, the poorer parts of, of New York. I mean, so every city has this, I think, division. It's a, a very sad reality. One thing I just want to say, as you were talking, I was thinking about this. Um, when you start to study how movements succeed, uh, you realize that at some point the, the security personnel, the police, and other security personnel will will start to divide, and they will start to support the movement. And that's really when you're starting to getting close to victory. And I've seen that uh, in multiple times. In fact, in the drug issue, I remember when when, uh, when a lot of former police narcotics agents formed a group called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition that worked to end drug prohibition because they saw how it was so bad for the police. And so dividing, when you start to learn how to pursue movements, what you, you do is a, a review of uh, the various groups that are impacted by whatever you're working on. And you, it's, a, it's a, a spectrum of allies. You find people who are with you, people who are somewhat with you, people who are neutral, people who are partly against you. And you want to move everyone a little bit more toward your position of being on your side. And so you actually target your actions in order to, to divide the opposition and build your case, build your support. Because the reason movements win is because they become mass movements. Fringe movements fail. Mass movements win. And mass movements seek to, seek to get people from the power structure to join them. And that means not just people from law enforcement, but people from uh, business owners, media representatives, uh, the duopoly, the, the corporate political duopoly, the political parties, you want divisions in there. Uh, and so when, you, when you're organizing a movement and you start to actually think about it in a conscious way to try to accomplish an objective, you're strategic about it. And you organize actions in order to uh, pull people from those power structures to the movement so your movement grows and, and the opposition divides. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree that there, there is something afoot in terms of, you know, agents of the empire starting to divide. Um, for the first time, really, in the last couple of years, I've noticed I can't even really find all that many military folks. I'm talking professional military guys that I know who are willing to uh, defend the, the broad contours of the empire in any real way. 
I mean, they may say, oh, well, we can't retreat or this or that or, you know, at the margins. But there's really a lot of like professional soldiers are just at the point where they're saying, "Okay, I'm not going to bother to really uh, defend this. And uh, like you mentioned, with that happening in law enforcement and there is always that, you know, uh, Daisy in the rifle barrel moment, right, where the, the soldier or the cop refuses to shoot. So, you know. Pivoting back to the foreign and domestic connection, something I really want to talk about, and it really does relate to the drug war. Um, We're told uh, by the mainstream media and by the government mainly that what's going on in Venezuela is directly related to this drug war, right? That somehow, uh, you know, Nicolas Maduro, uh, the gangster drug, you know, trafficker is responsible for every, you know, heroin overdose on the street in Staten Island where I'm from, right, where we have an epidemic. And so turning to Venezuela specifically, because I know you have some expertise here, um, one of the things that jumped out about to me in your remarks at our joint Assange vigil uh, were the stories you told about your role in protests on this on this concern, you know, particularly surrounding the embassy to the Trump team's flagrant support of the unelected and demonstrably unpopular Juan Guaido coup attempt last year in Venezuela. Um, uh, Instructively, I think for our listeners, that all went down before the latest mercenary madness, you know, the former Green Berets of, you know, I can't remember the name of the Silver Corps or whatever. And you're like, guys, I would not want to sit down and have a beer with, right? (laughs) And not my kind of soldiers. my own sense, as you likely saw in my latest column for the American Conservative, is, is that absurd as it was in many aspects, the aborted coup, uh, I think we dismiss it at our kind of collective peril, you know, due to it being wholly consistent with Uncle Sam's sort of past imperialism in the region, and also that it reflects so many of the broader aspects of what's, you know, a not so new, but new American way of war that we see developing, right? The use of contractors and proxies. Uh, so I've labeled the Venezuela debacle more of one of foreboding than farce. Uh, admittedly, though, I do a better job in the piece of the deep backstory, right? Because that's kind of what I know. Uh, than the immediate one. So I was hoping maybe you could sort of do two things for us. Uh, Frame what happened in the context of the last several, but particularly the last couple of years uh, in Venezuela, and then, you know, sort of respond to my nascent thesis regarding what it pretends, if anything. And do tell me if I'm way off, because I'd be delighted, frankly, if this is more of a one-off than a reflection of, you know, past and present proxy war. Now, Venezuela is a long-term effort by the United States over multiple presidencies, Ever since Hugo Chavez was elected in 1998 and became president in 1999, the U.S. has wanted to take back Venezuela. Venezuela had always been uh, a U.S.-controlled state. Up until that time, it had been a major source from oil, for oil since the 1920s, and uh, the U.S. oil companies profited tremendously from it. The election of Chavez was a rejection of U.S. domination. A 2002 coup attempt by President Bush uh, led to Chavez being taken out of office for two days until the pe- people came back and immediately re- uh, demanded his return. He was returned to the presidency and became more radical after that. People pushed him even be more radical than he had been. He'd been more cautious, but after that coup failed, he got more radical. President Maduro, who took his place after uh, Chavez died, he was uh, elected by a slim margin and then reelected again recently in a, a very legitimate election despite what the uh, corporate media says. I was there for that election. Venezuela has one of the best democracies run in the world. It's a much more real democracy than the United States is. So calling Venezuela a dictatorship is just obscene if you know the reality. 
Venezuela has 95% uh, registration rates, trying to 100%. They make sure that voters have voting machines that uh, re- make sure that people don't wait four or five hours in line like they do in the United States to vote. It's much more efficient. And they have voting machines that are uh, uh, foolproof as far as fraud goes because they're both electronic ballot and a paper ballot that's reviewed by the voter and then put into a ballot box. And what they do that no other country does in the world is they, on election night, at every polling place, they do a uh, selection of 54% of the machines, a random selection, 54% of machines, and they count the paper ballots for each of those machines in public. They show the public, media, opposition, all parties, all, you know, totally open. Here's the ballot. They show it. They count it. And if the vote count and the electronic count match, then the electronic count is good. If not, they count every ballot by, by the paper ballot. So that's a – and it starts – the voting starts with a fingerprint and ends with a fingerprint. So you know there's no fraud. You have a paper ballot. It's a very clear election. And the, the U.S. knew they were going to lose that election, uh, so they tried to create a boycott of that election, but it didn't work. Uh, we still had a, a turnout that was about equivalent to what the United States has for our presidential races, which is low for Venezuela, but it was still equivalent to that. And there were more than 200 election observers from around the world for that election, and they unanimously agreed. It met all the standards of democracy under international law. So calling Venezuela, and that's just part of the story about Venezuela's democracy. There's much more to say about it. It really goes down to the grassroots level and developing a direct democracy, not just a representative democracy, which is a a fantastic evolution I'd love to talk about, but we probably don't don't have enough time to go into all those details. As far as as this recent... uh, it was a farce, this, uh, this recent attempt, and, and the U.S. was clearly involved. As much as uh, Pence says there was no direct involvement, uh, well, that's, that's a nice code for there was indirect involvement. But they had multiple bases in Colombia where these, these, uh, these mercenaries were being trained. There's no way the U.S. was not aware of that. Uh, there's a, a DEA agent who was one of the uh, people arrested in this uh, event. There were two... Uh, Former U.S. paramilitaries uh, were arrested in the event. There's absolutely no way the U.S. did not know about this. In fact, the U.S. probably funded it. Uh, in fact, you know, Guaido's name is uh, on, on the contract. And the, in fact, the, the, the lawyers uh, for uh, the Silver Corp that organized this are actually suing uh, Guaido for payment. You know? So it's, just, it's, just a, it's, it's a farce in that way, but it's not a farce. In that it, this is a serious effort. The U.S. is not giving up. The U.S. is uh, escalating its economic sanctions, which are illegal, unilateral coercive measures, illegal under UN international law, but they are causing terrible problems in Venezuela. 40,000 deaths in two years, according to the Center for Economic and Policy Research. 40,000 deaths caused by U.S. sanctions because we're, uh, pharmaceuticals are not able to come into the country. Venezuela had one of the strongest pharmaceutical manufacturing markets in Latin America before these sanctions, but because of the sanctions, they were unable to get the precursors for some of the pharmaceutical drugs, and half their pharmaceutical industry had to close. Uh, and so it's, 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 it's just a real devastation. Uh, but the people of Venezuela are not giving up. They're rallying around Maduro. He's getting more popular. Uh, he's doing an amazing job of putting, 
creating more than 3 million social housing units, 3 million units of housing, each family about four people, that's 12 million people get free housing uh, in the midst of this economic war. 12 million people out of a population of 32 million get free housing, even in the midst of the economic war. They provide 6 million um, uh, boxes of food, food and kitchen utensils each month uh, to households. Again, four, uh, you know, four people per household, that's 24 million households, 24 million people getting those boxes of food and other supplies. What was the U.S. reaction? The U.S. reaction is to sanction those involved in providing those supplies. I and mean, that's the craziness of the United States, sanction people for providing food in Venezuela. Uh, and so Maduro is actually more popular now than he ever was, and that's because he has stood up to the United States. People have rallied. When I was in Venezuela, even people who opposed Maduro uh, from a left perspective, would not criticize it because the most important thing was to stop U.S. imperialism. They did not want U.S. domination. Uh, as far as the drug charges go, even the DEA's own uh, maps on how drugs come to the United States show that Venezuela is a minor player. Uh, and that the, and in fact, the Venezuela kicked out the DEA in uh, 2004, and since that time, they've increased their seizures of drugs because DEA was really focused more on regime change than on drug enforcement. Countries like Colombia and Honduras, where the U.S. is really in control and allied with those governments, those are the real drug-producing and drug-shipment countries. Uh, in fact, the brother of the president of Honduras, who was put in place by the uh, Obama-Clinton regime uh, as an coup d'etat, uh, the brother was convicted in U.S. federal court for drug trafficking, and the president was mentioned multiple times in that case for being involved in the drug trafficking. So the real criminals when it comes to the drug issue are the U.S. closest allies, Honduras and Colombia. Venezuela is doing its best to enforce the drug laws uh, and is a minor player in drug shipments. That's a totally false charge, but it's so, it's so bizarre for the U.S. to put a bounty on the head of President Maduro and other leaders in uh, that country, $15 million bounty on President Maduro's head. 10 million on other people, on other, other, other leaders. Uh, so it's going to invite the kind of um, uh, soldiers of fortune that we saw in that last farce. Uh, but make no mistake about it, the U.S. is behind this. We'll continue to escalate this. And uh, again, I also can tell you the Venezuelan people are so deeply educated against U.S. imperialism. I was so impressed by the deep education. Uh, I've, I've been in Venezuela twice in the last couple of years. One of the times I uh, went to a number of rallies in support of Maduro, they were just massive, hundreds of thousands of people. You couldn't see beginning to end. They were so, so massive. I, and at the same time, Guaido announced a protest. We tried to find his protest. We couldn't even find them. Most of them were canceled because and he, he's gotten less popular since that time. And I, one of the most amazing experiences I had was going to their most popular TV show, this is a five-hour weekly show. One, one night a week, five hours this show goes for. And it's a political show. It's a mixture of Saturday Night Live. It's a mixture of music and dance and political commentary. It's, it's led by the, the person who's the head of the National Constituent Assembly. Uh, and uh, he does a, in the show, the, the show we saw taped, um, he had three bulletin boards up. Each bulletin board had postcards on it 
He went through each postcard as a political story, and he reviewed each political story uh, and discussed it with the audience. So this is the most popular show in Venezuela, and it's a deep show. Uh, and they do these songs that are about uh, Bolivarian process and support for the, you know, of the people. Uh, they have dances. Uh, there was a whole section of military, uh, members of the military, and they were dancing. It was, just, it was just an amazing thing. The next day, we went to, the, you know, to our uh, hotel restaurant. All the waiters knew who we were because everyone had seen the show. And they made us all stand up individually and recognized us. And so they all saw, the audience all saw who we were. Uh, but that, that's the kind of political education they have. It's a, a multi-level process of political education so that if the U.S. were to come into Venezuela in a military way, U.S. would be defeated. Not only does Venezuela have a 200,000-person military, as well as National Guard and police, they have more than three and a half million people trained and armed as civilian militia to stand up against an invasion. So if the U.S. or Colombia or Brazil were to come in, they'd be standing up to a civilian militia that would include teenagers to grandmothers armed and trained to fight them. It would be a bloody defeat for the U.S. and its allies. On top of that, Russia and China are allied with Venezuela. Russia has provided Venezuela with uh, anti-aircraft weaponry to prevent uh, aircraft attack. And they've also, when the U.S. has threatened to do a naval blockade, they, Russia has threatened to put uh, ships in, uh, in port in Venezuela. And China is also invested in Venezuela. So if you go into Venezuela, United States, you're not just fighting Venezuela. You're fighting Russia and China as well. So this becomes a regional and potential global conflict and uh, be a terrible error for the United States to think they can easily go into Venezuela and steal their natural resources. And they have a lot of natural resources, number one in gold, number one in diamond, number one in oil, reserves on all three, they're number one. They have um, number five in gas worldwide. They have vast resources of minerals that are essential for electronics and weapons, which is, I would think, the, what the U.S. really wants more than anything else. And so they have a lot of natural resources, but they will not allow their country to be taken over by the United States again. They've experienced that and don't want to go back to, back to that past, which is so devastating. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting what you're describing because there's such a gap. And this, I think, is something that popular resistance helps fill. There's an enormous gap, it appears, from what the official government and media narrative is of like what life's like, whether it's in Cuba or in Venezuela, and then like what international observers and, and all these other groups and then just citizens see it as. And, and that's a huge thing. And something else that jumps out at me is how counterproductive American policy in Venezuela ultimately is, right? And so obviously it would be a massive bloodbath for everybody if the United States attempted something overt. I mean, and you mentioned these militias. I mean, fishermen pulled some of these, you know, mercenaries right. out of the water, which I think is so instructive about what you're saying, uh, and also a little bit inspiring. Uh, and, and, you know, you look at the last time the United States backed like an embarrassing coup, the one you mentioned in 2002, right, where, you know, he was sort of saved, uh, you know, Chavez was uh, after a few days out of office. You know, in the six years after that, nine countries in Latin America, nine uh, elected left-leaning and foreign policy independent countries, I mean, governments, presidents. And, and, and it's like, it makes you wonder what the end game ultimately is for Washington and, and who's piloting the ship, because it seems so apparent to anyone who just basically does any reading that this hasn't worked, 
Uh, I mean, I guess it's worked if the goal was to hurt the people of Venezuela, but it has not achieved any sort of political reorientation towards the United States. Well, you know, it's, uh, President Bush was, had his eye off the ball in the Middle East, I mean, in Latin America, because he was focused on the Middle East. And I think that allowed for a lot of the progress you talked about, the, uh, the rising left, left governments that took power uh, during his administration. But President Obama was the, President Obama was an excellent empire president. He really did, uh, much more effective than uh, President Bush or certainly President Trump, who's a devastating empire president. Terrible for the U.S. empire, thank goodness. But um, President Obama regained a lot of that progress. Uh, a whole variety of means were used, whether it was the uh, legal approach, the uh, legislative approach as far as, uh, you know, knocking uh, uh, the Labor Party out of out of office in Brazil, uh, you know, and uh, keeping Lula in jail, uh, or whether it was, uh, you know, just you could pick each country and go through it. But you're seeing a rising tide again in Latin America, uh, a strong undercurrent in the countries that the U.S. has taken back are in conflict. Uh, and if the people get the power, they will return those left governments. And Venezuela is so key because if Venezuela stands up and succeeds against this onslaught that began to escalate under Obama and then is escalated more under Trump, if they succeed, it's going to be a symbol to other countries. And that's really one of the major reasons why the U.S. is not giving up, is is that they can't have the symbol of a country succeeding in breaking from U.S. empire and doing well on its own. That symbol is just too dangerous. Now, it plays in a geopolitical sense because Russia, China, Iran, and other countries are coming to the aid of Venezuela when they're under attack by the United States, because we're going through an age of ending of U.S. unilateral domination and U.S. hegemony to an age of multilateralism, uh, not just the major powers, uh, but also smaller countries uh, joining together. And so I think it's a much more interesting future internationally and much more democratic future internationally when dollar diplomacy is weakened. We're seeing it get weakened constantly now uh, as U.S. has spread sanctions to cover one-third the population of the world, countries are now joining with each other to fight against U.S. sanctions, finding ways around Wall Street and creating their own um, tools for trade that doesn't include the dollar. And so it's very self-defeating for the United States uh, when it keeps attacking with uh, attempted dollar domination. It's just not, it's just not working. Uh, and, and then the, the U.S. military is so bloated and so weighty uh, that our country... Uh, the economy just can't handle it any longer. And with this COVID crisis and global economic collapse, it makes it even more difficult for the U.S. military to fund it. And you mentioned uh, some people in the military turning against the military. Well, that COVID outbreak, and this is, this is not, there was just that one recent example uh, in Vietnam and, uh, you know, when the, the captain of the ship was uh, forced, was, was kicked, was, was uh, fired, and the troop, the, the, the shipmates all stood up for him and now they're talking about bringing him back and the, you know, it's just an amazing mess of the troops saying no to the political, the military leadership. It's just, and that's just one example. You're seeing COVID is a big problem in the Navy and that's because it's not built for preventing uh, outbreaks. It's built for everyone sleeping close to each other, eating together. And that's a, 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 a kind of a, made in hell for virus. It's going to mean virus is going to spread rapidly. So the U.S. military is in very deep problems, and the U.S. is in deep problems around the world as countries unite 
against uh, U.S. attempted domination. Even Europe is starting to break. Even Europe. You know, the attempt to divide Europe and Russia, that's starting to falter. You saw it recently with the massive military exercise that was going to be against Russia that was canceled because Germany said no. We can't, you can't use our country for that. Uh, you saw the, with the efforts of trying to stop the pipeline from Russia to Germany. Again, it's, it's going forward. So even with, uh, even with uh, all that, you're seeing divides. Now, the U.S. really sees the big threat as China. And that's why they're trying to use COVID to escalate conflict with China. Uh, this nonsense story that the virus started in the Wuhan lab, which has been disproven and disproven and disproven. We have an article on popular resistance today about that, in fact. Uh, it, but it's, it, the escalation of conflict with China is a response to China becoming the global power uh, through its Belt and Road Initiative that goes through, that connects China with Europe through Middle East and through Africa, through Russia. And that is the future of the economy. And the U.S. is very afraid of that because that will be what drives the economy in the second half of this century. Uh, and the U.S. is doing its best with this COVID virus to really turn the world against China. But I'd be surprised if it works. Uh, China uh, is, is very smart in how it handles these crises. And uh, they've handled the virus at home well. And they're also just increased their funding to the World Health Organization while the U.S. has cut back. Uh, so China is rising in the face of, uh, of, of U.S. mistakes. Yeah, this is totally vital. And so as we sort of, um, you know, get ready to close out, I, I want to transition using some of your points. I mean, I think you're pointing out some of the obsolescence of some of the key tools of empire, right? Whether it's, you know, you can't measure, you can't fight a pandemic or climate change with an aircraft carrier or a tank. And, you know, even NATO and some of these old alliances are, 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 are showing themselves as a little bit obsolete as, there's, as they're taking an independent road, almost like you wonder if there'll be a new non-aligned sort of movement that, that takes on the mantle even stronger than it did, you know, at, at Bandung in 55. Th this is all important. And then one of the other things that strikes me as potentially obsolete, and I'm outing myself a little bit here, is the duopoly. Because you mentioned how Obama kind of waged a counteroffensive uh, after Bush left, and specifically in Latin America. And so you saw the, the coup in Honduras, uh, and of course, the remarkable citizen resistance that's still ongoing to that coup. But, you know, he supports that coup, the, the, the madness in Brazil that we're, of course, seeing with Bolsonaro's, you know, deadly farcical response. Obama sort of did come back, you know, and, and it makes me wonder how different, say, a Biden president would be uh, on empire, right, on the core systemic issues. And so uh, let me ask you, and, and, and of course, I know that I'm <laughs> setting you up for attack because, you know, recently my gambling on Biden foreign policy article stirred up, as I suspected and probably hope to provoke a bit of a shitstorm. And I figure if the polite emperor that you mentioned uses that particular cuss word, uh, then I, it must be permissible for all of us. <laughs> Uh, well, Biden by, 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 by is an architect of empire. I mean, when he was of course. chairman of Foreign Relations Committee, he did more to push the Iraq war than Bush did. It was terrible. He, he, he only allowed generals and admirals who supported the war to testify. Those who opposed it were not allowed to testify. Uh, he he, he was, did, did much more than just vote for it. He shepherded through that, that false weapons of mass destruction war and the damage it caused. Uh, so he's, he's an architect of empire. No, he, he will not uh, be a good... I mean, but Biden has been on the opposite of almost every issue I've worked on my whole career. He's also an architect of the drug war. Uh, he created the drug czar's office. He uh, 
opposes, still opposes marijuana legalization, even now. Uh, he was terrible on student debt. So even in bankruptcy, students are stuck with debt. On issue after issue, Biden is about the worst of all Democrats. And so I, I can't see anyone who really votes based on issues uh, to vote for him. And the only way you can vote for Biden is if you're just voting against Trump. And I think a lot of people will do that, but that's, I think, a wasted vote. My view is this election is too important to waste your vote on Trump or Biden. I, I'm, I'm working with the Howie Hawkins campaign. HowieHawkins.us is the website, and that's the leading Green Party candidate. He's a, one of the founders of the Green Party. He was the first candidate to ever run on the Green New Deal. did so in 2010. He's an anti-imperialist. Uh, he is a, a labor organizer. He's a retired teamster. Is, is the vice presidential candidate. Angela uh, is a Walker is also a working class candidate. So you have two working class candidates running. I think that's the place to put your, your effort because history shows uh, throughout U.S. history, we've had this corporate two-party system where the biggest businesses support the two parties. But we made progress on a whole range of issues from slavery to union rights to voting rights for women, civil rights for uh, blacks, um, ARR. So the tradi- what's made us win as people throughout our history is not electing the president. It's creating mass movements combined with third parties that did not win but put issues on the agenda. Uh, and that combination of third parties putting issues on the agenda, putting the issues of the movement on the agenda is what's created a lot of transformational change. And I think this year is too important to waste your vote on Biden, who is silent on the COVID crisis, who has no ideas for the uh, economic collapse, uh, terrible on climate change, terrible on, you pick the issue, he's, he's not, and, and then Trump, who's the worst president of my life. How can you vote for either one of those two? Uh, it, it's a, it's, it's a, choice of two Wall Street uh, corrupted politicians uh, when we have crises that we're facing. We need to build a movement and get our movement issues into the agenda through a third-party campaign. So that's why I'm supporting Harry Hawkins, uh, the Green Party. Yeah, this is uh, this is so important. And I, and I think a good place to sort of close out, you know, you, you sort of uh, you knew where I was going with it and you gave the exact answer that I was hopeful for. And, and I think the most important thing you mentioned, you know, despite the fact that there is really sort of a civil war brewing right within the left, if you want to call it that, you know, anything that divides Chris Hedges and Jimmy Dore and Noam Chomsky and Cornell West uh, is, is a significant thing, but the point you make is valid. And the one that I don't hear enough is the one you just made, which is that, on any of these major social issues that you mentioned, from slavery to civil rights to you name it, uh, nothing was ever given to the people, right? right. Kennedy, didn't, did, Kennedy didn't give civil rights to African Americans. He was forced, and Johnson right. was forced. And Lincoln was forced by the abolitionists, who no one remembers, were considered crackpots. And they were a tiny, tiny group at first. Uh, these people even, working even, outside. Even, 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 even interesting about the abolitionists, when there, there were 20 years of abolition parties before the Republicans, before Abraham Lincoln. And during the abolition party era, they were called spoilers because they spoiled it for the Whigs and the Democrats who were the two slavery parties. They spoiled it because they, they, support, they, they hurt the Whigs, which were the, the Democrats of, the, of that era. They were more the anti-Mexican war party but they were still pro-slavery. So we're called spoilers today. We're not spoilers. We are the ones that are on the right side of history. We are the ones pushing to confront climate change, to confront inequality, to put in place uh, 
public health measures, including uh, single-payer Medicare for all and a national health service. We're the ones actually putting forth the agenda that's needed. We're not spoiling it. We're saving the elections. And it's that movement of movements uh, that you're talking about that either will or must bring down the duopoly or transforms it irreparably. And I think that's what uh, you're doing over there at Popular Resistance. So if you can, you know, tell the listeners how they can support you. And, uh, and, you know, I just think we need to really direct people in your, in your well, way. The, the most thing, the most important is to come to Popular Resistance and participate. Uh, we have a daily digest where you can get daily news reports and you can pick up the stories that interest you and share those with other people so you can break the barrier that they're trying to put in place, the corporate, corporate media and the algorithm and, the, you know, all the efforts to suppress our views. Break that barrier by getting the daily digest and sharing it. Uh, then we do also a weekly newsletter. Um, one, one of the newsletters you can see on the website was about the 2020 elections and why we have to work outside the duopoly, build the movement, support third parties. And I go through the history. Margaret Flowers and I go through the history of how third parties combined with social movements make change. And so you understand the history, but you can do it there. You can also take our, go to our movement school, how social transformation occurs, and prepare yourself to be a leader of this coming transformational decade. Uh, and so popularisms.org provides all that stuff for no charge. If you want to make a donation, that's great. But the most important thing is for you to participate and be in ship in a political movement that's of multitudes, lots of leaders. It becomes an unpredictable force. It becomes a dominant force that the, the government cannot ignore or stop. And so just participate, popularisms.org, and get involved. And thanks so much, Kevin. Uh, do check out the site podcasts, you know, everything that they link to the school. Um, thank you for giving us your time uh, in, a, in what we know is just crazy moment. And uh, I really hope we can do this again. Thank you for everything you do uh, personally for me and much more importantly for just all the activists on all the levels out there. It's been a pleasure, man. Great. Thanks a lot. Keep up the great work. Uh, thanks. Thanks a lot, both of you. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill, and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com and if you're not into giving us a monthly payment think about giving us a couple bucks on paypal the link is in the show notes skepticism is one's best armor never forget it we'll see you next time you good people and listen to my song i hope you'll pay attention I will not 